Well, this morning, we're going to start a brand new series in the book of Romans. And hopefully, uh, I've been letting you know this since a couple months ago, you've been reading the book of Romans. I pray if you haven't, that you'll start. Um, There's one church father that had the book of Romans read to him twice a day (laughs) for a a long time. And uh, he can't uh, recount the, the impact it had on his life. And today we're just going to just barely scratch the surface as we open up this wonderful uh, letter from the Apostle Paul to the church of Rome. Um, This is one book, to be honest with you, I've kind of steered away from teaching through just because it's very overwhelming. If you've read through it, you know what's in it. And there's a lot of information in there that frankly is rather difficult to piece together and to understand completely. Not that we're ever going to understand um, the mind of God completely, but uh, it's, it's definitely different than going through something like a gospel or a shorter epistle, even though some of them have some weighty uh, theology in them. But this is kind of intimidating in a way, and I know that um, for the next several years as we're weaving our way through this, this letter together, 16, the, the, the chapters all, all together there, and uh, we'll be making our way through this. And I pray, and it's our prayer as the leadership here, that this really impacts you in, in a way that it will impact us as we all go through this together. Um, but I'm reminded of, of Paul's writing in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16. Um, not just going through Romans, but whenever you stand up here and you teach the Word of God, I, I always believe what Paul said in verse 16 of chapter 2, uh, who is adequate <laughs> for these things? Um, you're looking at a very inadequate man today. <laughs> it just That's just the way it is when it comes to this kind of uh, undertaking and teaching the Word of God. And uh, I don't think we should ever feel adequate in and of ourselves, but we know that God will give us the grace to get through this um, and I think that it will be a real blessing because it, it really holds some of the deepest theological truths in all of God's Word. I really believe that. Um, and if we just get a glimmer of the majesty of the glory of God, uh, we can be exclaiming with the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 11, verse 33, where he says, Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. So you're immediately starting to study and to teach and internalize something that God's word himself tells you, you know what, these are unsearchable Words. These are uh, unfathomable. Some of these things aren't going to just fit together like a, a piece of a puzzle that you pull out of a box. So it's a very daunting task for us to go through this, but we're, we're looking forward to how God's going to use this in us. And yet, uh, you know, I'm the first to say that there's a lot of information in here that it's going to take time to understand, and we may never understand it adequately until we get to glory. But uh, we begin with a little fear and trembling. But I think that the first thing I want to talk about, just to introduce this book to you, is the wonderful influence that the book of Romans has had on all of history. It's amazing how God can use one man, the Apostle Paul, and his secretary, who wrote it for him, as he dictated it to him, as the Spirit of God moved 
through the Apostle Paul to record these words. Um, even back in 386 A.D., that the person we know as Augustine, a man from North Africa, actually, um, he was a professor of rhetoric in Milan, Italy. And um, he was basically a follower of a cult. And this cult, we're not going to get into all that, but under conviction of his sins, um, and yet still not having turned to Christ for forgiveness, history tells us that this man wept in the garden of his friend, and he heard somebody on the other side of the, the wall that was in this garden proclaiming, take up and read, take up and read in their native language. And he had never heard this song before as this child sang this song. And so he took it as a word from God. And, and so he went into the, the, the place he was staying there and he picked up a scroll of the Bible and he said that his eyes fell randomly on Romans chapter 3, verses 13 to 14. Romans chapter 3, verses 13 to 14 says this, Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. And Augustine later wrote, after he read that, he said instantly, at the end of that sentence in verse 14, a clear light flooded his heart. And all the darkness of doubt vanished away. And it says that he was saved from all of his life of sexual immorality at that point. And he went on to become one of the most influential men in history from the time of Paul to the Reformation. Over a thousand years after uh, this, this, this whole thing took place. Even Martin Luther, whom God used to begin the, the Reformation... We know he was not an immoral man. He was a monk, though, and he lived a life of fasting, prayer, and treated his body in a severe way, thinking somehow that's going to give him peace with God. And he felt condemned because of his sins, and he knew what lurked in his heart. And as he poured over the Scriptures, looking for an answer, he wrestled with Romans 1, verse 17 which says, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, But the righteous man shall live by what? Faith. See, instead of loving God as he knew he should, Luther found himself hating God in his heart because of his apparently impossible standard of God's law. He was looking at trying to keep the law to get saved. And that requires us to be perfectly righteous. And Luther wrestled with this text. And God finally graciously opened up his eyes to see that God's righteousness is that which he freely imputes to the guilty sinner who has faith in Christ. Luther wrote that when he felt reborn, that, that when he felt reborn and that he had entered into paradise. Scripture took on a whole new meaning to him and the concept of God's righteousness rather than filling him with hate now all of a sudden began to fill him with inexpressible, sweet 
great love. And he called Romans the chief part of the New Testament and the very purest gospel. And then we see 200 years later, John Wesley, who had formed a a holy club at Oxford, striving in a manner to live in a way that pleases God. He had served as a missionary in, in Georgia, but had failed miserably. And on May 24th, 18, or 1738, excuse me, in great distress of soul, he went to a meeting at Aldersgate Street in London where someone was reading from the preface of Luther's commentary on Romans. And Wesley wrote in his journal this, at about a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for my salvation. And an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. That one conversion, beloved, sparked the great 18th century revival that changed the whole entire history of England. And Romans so profoundly affected the life of church father Christendom, who he was the one who had it read to him twice each week. Did I say twice a day? Twice each week. And God used it in even preparing God, uh, John Bunyan's uh, conversion. And so we see that the book of Romans was used in just an incredible way. One Swiss commentator says this, every great spiritual revival in church will be connected as effect and cause with a deeper understanding of this book. And so we want to stop and we just want to really contemplate all that we're about to move into. In a nutshell, the theme is the gospel. Uh, The good news that God declares sinners to be righteous when they trust in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on their behalf. Uh, It involves both an imputed righteousness, that which we know as justification, Romans 3 to 5, and also an imparted righteousness, being sanctification, that's worked out progressively in our lives as we become more and more uh, like our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, through the power and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And that's covered in in Romans 6 to 8. There's a lot of sub-themes in this book. Flesh versus spirit, law versus grace. Um, And we're going to grapple with those as we go through that. But Romans is one of the rare New Testament books where liberal scholars have not really challenged its authorship. I mean, how can you? It starts off, Paul, (laughs) a servant, a slave of Christ Jesus. It says it right there. Almost all agree that Paul wrote Romans. Now, there are some out there that disagree, but we're not going to deal with them. It's pretty clear that he did, and he used uh, a secretary that's named for us back in chapter 16, verse 22, Tertius. And he was the secretary for Paul. 
as he recorded this, as the Holy Spirit moved him to record this letter. Remember, it's a letter. It's a letter from Paul to the Christians at Rome. Now, we know that he wrote it from Corinth. Some believe that he actually had a room in Corinth that looked over the Agora, the plaza there. And if you know anything about Corinth, Corinth was known for what? Sexual promiscuity. I mean, if you were called a Corinthian back then, you, you were basically uh, not a very good person. Because their community, their, their society was so filled with sin. And so he wrote this letter to the Roman church there, probably as he was looking out, looking over the Agora, seeing all the sin go on right before his eyes. Probably wrote it between 56 and 58 A.D. And he was about to go to Jerusalem with the gift for the poor that he had collected from the Gentile churches in both Macedonia and Achaia. And Phoebe, in, in verse, or chapter 16, it tells us who was from a, a port near Corinth, probably carried this letter, this written letter, from Paul to the church at Rome. Now, can you imagine being in the church at Rome and getting this letter from the Apostle Paul himself? He wanted to come visit, but he wasn't able to do it at this time. He did it later when he was in prison there. That's where he wrote a lot of the prison epistles. But this one, he wasn't in prison. He was in Corinth. And so after his ministry in Jerusalem, Paul hoped to pass through Rome and minister there briefly. Now, we don't know how this, necessarily how this church began in Rome. We do know one thing. It began in a way that's contrary to Roman Catholic tradition. Uh, Peter did not start it. At least he didn't start it by being there. Some believe that maybe when he was preaching, some folks got saved and they moved to Rome. So he maybe had been a result of Peter's ministry. But the church began when some Jews who were present at the day of Pentecost got saved and then they returned home. We see that in Acts chapter 2. And so I think that if if it would have been Peter who actually started physically the church in Rome, I think Paul, in the beginning of this epistle, this letter, would have addressed Peter, and he doesn't. By the time Paul wrote this letter, the church contained Jews, but it was predominantly Gentile. Now remember, before the church came on the, the, the horizon, you had Jews, and they lived their life, and you had Gentiles, and they lived their life. Never the two shall mix, ever. And yet, they get saved, and they're both called to worship the same God in the same church. That would cause a little problem. And it did. It caused a major problem. Now, Romans is Paul's, you might say, theological masterpiece. Swindoll says that it's the constitution for the Christian. It basically answers a lot of theological questions for us. But why did he write these truths in this book to this church? One reason, I think, was that he wanted to prepare for his intended visit. You know, sometimes when you maybe go to visit relatives or whatever, I mean, today we just call them up on the phone, right? Or we text them or we do something like that. But usually we'll give them a heads up. Hey, the plane's going to land. You know, we write them a little thing. That's kind of what Paul was doing. He wanted to go visit these Christians in Rome, and so he wrote them a letter 
telling them, hey, I'm on my way. I'm getting ready to come visit you. Even though it didn't work out, that was his intention. And I think that he wanted to kind of secure a, a Western base for his venture of sharing the gospel. But I think also he wanted to defend the gospel. Because you have to understand, as the Jews got saved, some of them didn't completely understand theologically how everything worked. And so I think Paul maybe anticipated some of the Judaizers who had plagued his ministry at every step would try to put in their errors into the Roman church and somehow get them off mark. And to head off that possibility, he wanted to go there. He wanted to go there personally and, and kind of build them up and edify them. But more than that, he wanted to send a letter. That's how kind of important it was for Paul to kind of let them know that, you know what, I want to make sure that you're defending the gospel there in Rome. I mean, he did kind of cover some of that in through Galatians when he wrote that letter, but he really expands upon a lot of that in, in the book of Romans, in the letter to the Roman church. I think he also wanted to resolve any of these conflicts that were going on between the Jews and the Gentiles. They were both coming together to worship, and some of them were saying, well, you have to still follow the law, you have to still do this, you have to still do that. And, and there was a lot of conflict within the churches back then over food, over what day to worship on, all sorts of things. And he covers all that in chapter 14. And so he covers some of that, and so we know that that was probably on his heart. One commentator says, from the inception of the letter Paul wants to persuade the Romans that his gospel is orthodox and that it's worth supporting. His goal is to unify the Roman church and rally them around his gospel so that they will help him to bring the gospel to Spain. That was really his goal. And so I put a little real general outline there in your, in your bulletin and basically six main sections here. First of all, he basically gives the introduction and the theme, verses 1 through 17, and then he covers sin in verse 18 through 320, salvation through 321 to 521, sanctification, chapter 6 through uh, chapter 8, sovereignty of God in chapter 9 through 11, and then the service that we're required to be part of as Christians in the remaining chapters there. And after introducing this letter, Paul sums up his theme. And you can find this theme in verses 16 and 17. This is kind of the theme of the whole letter. And he writes there, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Look at what he says. To the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For, it is, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. He wanted them to understand that the righteousness that they had was not a righteousness that was going to really matter to God at all. And that's one thing we need to understand even today. That if we're sitting here today thinking, well, we have our own righteousness. I'm a pretty good person. I try to do the right thing. I, I, I try to go to church. I try to go to Bible study. I do all these things, do little devotions and read and pray. and, and all. You're depending on your own righteousness. 
See, one thing you have to be clear of as a believer, as a Christian, of someone who is trusting in Christ, in Christ alone, you don't have to do a dance to get a hug from God. All right? You don't have to clean yourself up for, for God to love you more. That's not going to happen as a believer. Now, that doesn't mean that that gives us license to sin. And he covers that in here, too. But never, ever take the road that, you know what? I'm just going to kind of pull myself up by my bootstraps and try to do the right thing as a husband and as, a, as an employer, as an employee, and try to make right decisions and listen to my parents and do the right thing. And, and God's going to look down on me and say, wow, you're doing really good and give you a hand. That's not going to happen. Because, beloved, we have no righteousness of our own. And that's one thing he goes over and he goes over and he goes over throughout Romans. And it's very important that we understand that. No one can hope to be justified in God's sight because of his own goodness or his obedience to the law. I don't care how long you've been a Christian. I don't care how holy you think you are or whatever it is. The Bible is very clear. There's none righteous. No, not one. And that's kind of the overwhelming theme here. And since that's the case, the only way to get out of that fix, the only way to to deal with your unrighteousness, he tells us in chapter 3 and 5, is salvation must be by God's grace alone. That's it. If you're trusting in anything other than the grace of Christ, the work of Christ for your salvation, you're misled. Jesus Christ offered himself as the only sacrifice for our sins. There isn't a back door. There isn't, you know, door B, A, B, C, whatever. That that doesn't work that way. God says there's only one way, and that's through the sacrifice of my son. And by sacrificing himself on the cross, the Bible tells us that that satisfied God's justice. God had to have a sacrifice to pay for sin. And by faith alone, we can kind of lay hold of the benefits of Christ's sacrifice. Not by coming to church, not by doing good works, not by trying to pray more. All those things may be good things. But don't ever trust in those things to think that somehow you're satisfying God's justice a little bit. You know, that's how we think as adults. That's how we think as kids, right? When your kids get in trouble, what do they do? Try to make up for it. When us husbands get in trouble, what do we do? We try to make up for it. You go to Safeway, you buy a thing of flowers or something and bring it home. Hey, you know. The wife kind of looks at you. Don't think this makes it all right. Nah. I mean, we try, right? But see, that's, that's it. when we come to salvation, God says, you know what? You can try all you want. It's not going to make any difference because you're saved by grace and grace alone. By faith alone, we can lay hold of the benefits of his sacrifice. And you know what? That's just what happened in the Old Testament. Sometimes I remember when I first became a Christian, I thought before I went to Bible college that in the Old Testament, Abraham and uh, Moses and David and all those, they had to work. They had to do right things. They lived under the law. And if they were saved, they were saved because they did the right thing. That's not true. They were saved by grace just like we're saved by grace. The only difference is is they're looking forward to the cross. We're looking backward to the cross. 
In Abraham's case, it says that God declared him, right? Righteous. He didn't look at Abraham and say, oh, yeah, you're, you're willing to sacrifice your own son. I, you're, you're righteous. No. He said, I'm declaring you righteous. And this, this faith in Christ, it brings us back and reconciles us to our God, our Creator, and it brings us peace, it brings us joy, it brings us hope. Even in the midst of our trials, we still have that, that peace that surpasses all understanding. By God's grace, our own identity, our old identity in Adam is replaced. And it's replaced with a new identity in Christ. The Bible says all things, old things have passed away. Behold, all things have what? Become new. You're a new person in Christ. But God's grace does not mean that we're free to just go on living in sin as we want and as we desire. Rather, by identifying with the the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ... The picture is, you know what? We too have died to our old life. We too have set aside sin. And we desire to live a new life. We're having a baptismal class in in the future. And those of you who are interested in following the Lord and Believer's baptism, you can sign up for the class. We want you to make sure that you understand that this idea of baptism doesn't save you. It's just an outward sign of an inward change. In the, Old, in the New Testament, the early church, when a believer would come to Christ, they would follow the command of Jesus Christ to go and baptize. And, and so they would, they would be baptized themselves. And back then, they didn't have a nice little warm tub, you know, in the church, a nice little comfortable setting. They'd go down the Jordan River or somewhere like that and, and be baptized. And it was a public demonstration of your faith. That's what baptism is all about. You're telling the world that, you know what, I'm a new person. I'm taking the old person, I'm, I'm dunking it in this tank, and I'm coming out. It's a sign of your, your salvation in Christ. But it doesn't save you. But it's an act of obedience. It's probably one of, well, it is one of the first acts of obedience a believer should partake in. If you're here this morning and you know that you're a Christian, you've trusted Christ, you've evidenced him working in your life, you need to be baptized. And by the way, the, it's not sprinkling some water on your forehead. You know, the, the word baptized means to put under the water, to, 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 to dunk, all right, to completely submerge. And that's why we do it here in a baptismal tank. And, you know, some people say, well, why make a big deal about how it's done? Because we want to be biblical, that's why. I mean, it's not being hard-nosed about anything, but it's just like, you know, if the Bible says to do something, then we should do it. Sometimes I hear Christians, you know, and you talk to them about baptism, and they'll say things, well, you know, I'm really praying about it. And they've been praying about it for years. I've even told some of them, look, are you freaked out? Are you, are you afraid to get in the water? What is it? Uh, no, no, it's just just want to make the right decision. Well, the right decision is to get baptized. That's what the right decision is. You don't need to pray about it. Just do it. Like the commercial says, right? Well, I guess it doesn't say it anymore, but. But it's, it's important that we understand that the power of sin is broken. 
And because we're no longer under the law, we're under grace. And due to that indwelling sin that still remains in us, Paul says that we still have sin in our flesh. We still struggle. We're not perfect. But through the indwelling Holy Spirit, as we're filled with the Spirit, as we're controlled by the Spirit moment by moment, what happens? We can have victory in Christ. All those things are covered in this book. The hope of future glory in Him and the assurance of God's unfailing love sustains us in our trials. You know, if there was no hope, why would you do this Christian thing? If you couldn't be assured of heaven, why would you go through all this stuff? If God said, well, I might save you, I might not. I don't know. We'll see how it works out in the end. That wouldn't be much comfort. And so at first first glance here, it, it would seem that he even talks about God's promises to Israel. And there's a whole theology today called replacement theology and what that says is all the promises to israel are now void and now they're they're only promises to the church so israel doesn't really matter anymore that's a lie from the pit of hell that's not right that's not what the bible says we're going to go over those things god has always set his choice for a remnant and passed by others that's just the way God works. Now, God has clearly set aside, you might say temporarily, the Jews in some form or fashion because they rejected Christ. And he's poured out his grace in an abundant fashion on Gentiles. But he will use the Gentiles to bring salvation again to the Jews. And all that is, is according to his great wisdom and his great glory. Our relationships should be marked. He continues, even in in verses chapter 12 and 16, that all this theology that kind of we're going to go through has a reason. And it should motivate us to lovingly serve each other within the church. It should motivate us to be subject to our civil, civil government, whether we agree with them or not, unless they're calling us to do something that's outside of Scripture then we clearly obey God and not man. We should be careful not to wound our fellow Christians by our liberty in Christ. There's some Christians that think, well, yeah, I'm in the age of grace. I can do whatever I want. No, you can't. That's not what we're called to as believers. If something you do offends a brother or sister, or even potentially offends a brother or sister, you better be careful. You better watch it. We should join Paul in working to take the gospel to the Gentiles according to God's promises. All those things we're going to be going through in the coming months and most likely the years. But let's look here on the back. And I just want to read the first verse. And we're not going to get very far today, so don't get your hopes up. We're just going to get a couple points here. uh, And then we'll do our communion. But he starts off, And it was hard to kind of get past this first word, Paul. (laughs) I mean, there's so much that you need to know about this guy. We don't have time to cover it. We'll talk a little bit. But he says, Paul, a servant or a slave of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart 
for the gospel of God. First thing here is Paul the man. The most common formula for letters in that time began by identifying the author, which in my mind makes a lot of sense. If you ever get a letter and you start reading it and it's not making any sense and you've got to turn the page and you're, who is this from anyway? Oh, love, sincerely, Joe or George or whoever. Oh, okay. If I would have known that, I would never would have read it or whatever, you know. I mean, so, I mean, back then they had it right. They start right off, hey, I'm, I'm writing you a letter. My name's Paul. That makes a lot of sense. Identified the author. And then naming the recipients. And then usually they followed by a, a, a word of greeting. Romans, along with all the New Testament letters, except for Hebrews and 1 John, they all begin this way. Every one of them. F.F. F. Bruce says of Romans, there is more autobiography in this letter than meets the eye. The autobiography of a man who has been justified by faith. See, Paul, when he writes, he's writing from experience. Because we know who Paul was, right? Paul used to be who? Saul, right? And, and he was totally you know, neck deep in his religion. And he was out there doing what he thought was the right thing to do as a, as a Jew. And that's, you know what? Get rid of these Christian people. It's Israel, after all. It's the Jews that are God's chosen people. And so who are these people that are coming along saying that the Messiah is... Wait a minute. And so he, he didn't go out, I don't think, maliciously. just wasn't some axe murderer just out there killing people. Randomly, no. He had a purpose. His religion, basically, it's a, you can kind of make a corollary to a lot of the, the uh, Islamic terrorists. I mean, they really believe in their cause. They really do. That's why they can blow themselves up and think they're doing the right thing. That's why they can kill innocent women and children and think, well, you know, the end justifies the means. They really believe in their theology. And Paul, when he was Saul, really believed in his theology. And as a result of that, he was out there massacring Christians. And most of you know the story of his conversion. He was an extremely zealous Jew, bent on persecuting the church. He was responsible for the imprisonment and the death of many Christians. He oversaw the death of Stephen. But we know that he was on the road to Damascus to go kill up more Christians. And obviously the Lord struck him down. Acts chapter 9. With a blinding vision of himself. I mean, Jesus Christ literally came down and, and revealed himself in a way that he usually does not do. That's why Paul says, I was an apostle born out of due time. Because Christ wasn't here physically on earth. But he made a special trip right back for Paul. And God commanded this Jewish zealot to become an instrument, his instrument, to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. Can you imagine that? He's Jewish. And you want me to go do what? He hated Gentiles. It's interesting when you look in the book of Acts, 
In chapter 26, Paul tells of his conversion before Agrippa. And I just want to read this quickly. It says, in this connection, verse 12, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw the... On the way, a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand Upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose. Isn't it neat to know that God has a purpose for such people, even as Saul? I mean, sometimes we think that God has a purpose only for really good people, for real religious people, for people that are living a clean life and doing, oh, God's really going to use them. You know, God chose somebody here who was actually killing his followers. And he said, I have a purpose for you, Saul. And here's what it is. I mean, I'd love to be there just to see his face. To appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me. And to those in which I will appear to you. Delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, and that you may receive forgiveness, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. I mean, that's the really the, the, the conversion of Paul. And he goes on and he tells of what the consequences are there in verse 19. There, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and then throughout all the region of Judea and to all the Gentiles. What did you declare, Paul? That they should repent and they should turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. See, the scripture has something to say about Christians who go around mouthing the word, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian, but they live in disobedience continuously. We're not called to perfection. We're not perfect. That's why God has to make us perfect through the righteousness of Christ. But we're called to be obedient. Doesn't mean we don't slip up, we don't sin. That's where God's grace, that's where God's forgiveness comes in. But there are a lot of believers in the church today that are misguided and they think somehow God's grace is a license for them to go do whatever they want. No, you should be performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. In other words, if you're, if you're following your own way and you're steeped in your sins and you say, oh wait, now I want to become a Christian, I want to follow Jesus. The idea of repenting is turning from your sin to Christ. It's a change of direction, it's a change of mind, it's something God does. And when that happens, there should be a deviation in the way you live. You shouldn't be the same person. Something should change. If a child is disobedient to the parent, 
and they finally get the gospel and God saves them and they say, hey, mom and dad, I'm saved. And they just continue to live in disobedience to the parent. Guess what? The parents might scratch their head and say, "Ah, I don't know. We're not seeing a change here in your attitude, in your behavior, in your desire to become more like Christ. It's the same way with adults. And he says, you know what? I wasn't disobedient to this. I did it. For this reason, the Jews seized me. In other words, he did it so much, his own people seized him in the temple and tried to kill him. To this day, Paul writes in verse 22, Acts 26, he says, I've had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light to both, light both to our people and to the Gentiles. That's Paul's conversion. He lived it out. You know, I think in the church we're too quick to take people that say the little prayer or come down the aisle or whatever, pat them on the back and say, hey, welcome to God's family. My attitude personally is say, you know what, I'm going to wait a little bit. Let's see what happens here with you. I mean, if you're still steeped in your sin and you're still doing all these things and you don't desire the word of God, you don't desire to fellowship with God's people, you don't desire to, to understand the word of God and pray and, and, and rely on God more and more in your life, there's something wrong. Maybe there was no change. Maybe, maybe you're not saved. You're deceived. There's a lot of people that are going to stand before Jesus one day and say, Lord, Lord, haven't we done this? Haven't we done that? Haven't we helped the poor? Haven't we cast out demons? Haven't we healed people? Haven't we done all these things? And they're even calling Jesus Lord. And Jesus turns to them and he says, you know what? I don't even know who you are. I have no clue. You're claiming a relationship with me that does not exist. And the reason it doesn't exist is because it all depends on what you've done. What you do. That's not how we judge our relationship with God. It's based on not what we do, but on what has been done for us through Christ. That's why we come to this table. That's why we celebrate the Lord's table, to remember what was done on our behalf. I mean, aren't you glad that you didn't have to climb up on a cross and they pound nails in your thing and you, you hang there and die for your own sins? I mean, even if that could save you, which it never could because you're not a perfect sacrifice, but even if it could, it's sure a lot better idea than somebody else do it for you. And so we see this man, Paul, who was radically changed. A dramatic conversion. Maybe your conversion wasn't as dramatic as Paul's. I know mine wasn't. Mine was pretty basically down to earth. I finally understood what the pastor was saying when he said, there's none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned. And I sat there for an hour listening to him say that verse over and over and over out of Romans. And I kept on saying, I know, but I'm not like my brother. (laughs) I'm not as bad as my brothers. I'm not as bad as this person. I mean, I go to church every week. I go to mass every week. I'm an altar boy. And he kept on saying, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. (laughs) And he kept on underlining that word all. In the Bible he had. He just kept on underlining it. And finally it's like God just. Boom. Turned the switch. 
I said, you know what? That, that means me. Yeah. See, that means you. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And because of that, we need the grace of God. That's Paul the man. Paul's master was none other. It says there a servant, or a proper rendering is the word slave. A slave of Christ Jesus. A slave of Christ Jesus. Now there's some things here that we have to understand about being a slave. A bondservant is another way to put it. It emphasizes a subordinate, obligatory, responsible nature of service in relationship to the Lord. Uh, Throughout Scripture, we're told that the slave owes his master exclusive and absolute obedience. What's the characteristic of a slave? Total submission. You don't have the option as a slave to say, yeah, you know what, you want me to go plow the field today? It's kind of hot. You know, I'd rather do it tomorrow when it's cooler. No. When the master says, you've got to go do it, you've got to go do it. Because of our, our country's history with slavery, we don't like to talk about this very much. I mean, you know, they fought a whole civil war over the whole deal. But there is such a thing as being a slave to Christ. Paul understood that. Paul was his own man, pretty much, before he came to Christ. He was committed to his religion. He was doing what he thought was right. He was making, calling the shots. He, he elevated himself. He did everything good in his own mind. But when he was faced with Christ, all of a sudden, wow, what happened? I'm no longer my own. I can't just go out and do whatever I want. He began to realize, hey, there's, there's something here that belongs exclusively to Christ. As his children, beloved, we're called to do his will, not our own will. Every time you're set out to do your own will, it's either sin or disobedience most of the time. I know that's true in my own life. When I set out in a day and I, hey, I got a plan and I want to do this and, and it doesn't seem like it's happening. God's not lining things up and I continue down that path. No, I want to do this. Usually the train comes off the tracks and I find myself at the end of the day confessing sin in my heart, realizing, wow, I shouldn't have pushed this envelope because obviously God wasn't leading me down this path. I was leading me down this path. Why? Because I wanted it. I wanted this. I wanted that. I wanted to do something. We're no longer our own. We belong exclusively to Christ. And you have to understand, for this apostle to radically change like he did, the only way that could ever happen was Christ being the center of his life. Look at how often he refers to Christ in the opening verses. Verse 1, Christ Jesus. His son, verse 3 there. Verse 4, he says, His son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Verse 5, His namesake. Verse 6, Jesus Christ. Verse 7, the Lord Jesus Christ. See, the question we have to ask ourselves this morning is simply this. Is Jesus my exclusive master because he bought me with his blood? Do I view my daily life, my daily activities? It's not my own. It's not my own agenda. It's not my own plan. But it comes under the umbrella of understanding that I belong to Jesus and I have to do what he wants me to do. I want to serve him. Do I seek to obey him? 
beginning even on the thought level. Is that kind of mentality central to my thoughts, to my words, to my activities? That's what God desires. Look at Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8. When we talk about the characteristics of a slave, and we're only going to touch on a couple of these, then we'll do communion. The first one is total submission. Chapter 8, verse 9. Just so we understand what we're talking about here. We're not talking about a chain and whips kind of slave thing. Okay, it's called a bond servant. It's a, it's a slave who serves willingly. Verse 8 of Matthew chapter 8, or verse 9 of Matthew chapter 8. He says, talking about the faith of the centurion, but the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have come under uh, for you to have come under my roof, but only say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I am too a man under authority, with soldiers under me. And look at what he says. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, or my slave, do this, and he does it. See, a servant, a slave, does what his master says. Turn a couple pages to the right. Matthew chapter 10, verse 24. It says there, a disciple is not above his teacher. Matthew 10, 24. Nor a slave above his master. We're not above Christ. We don't call the shots. We don't name and claim whatever we want. and God has to answer us. That's not biblical theology. A couple more pages to the right in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 14. Luke 14. Luke 14, verse 22. And the slave said, Sir... What you, ha- what you commanded has been done. Notice, whenever the Scripture talks of a slave and, a, and a, a master, a servant kind of relationship, it's always based on obedience of the slave. The slave doesn't have the option to obey or not to obey. Just like when God calls us to do something, we don't have the option to just say, well, you know, let somebody else do it. No. In John chapter 13, verses 15 to 17, we know that Jesus just got done washing the disciples' feet. In verse 15, he says, For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, I say to you, a servant, a slave, is not greater than his master. We're we're to totally submit. We don't have any personal rights when it comes to Christ. We get hung up on that way too quickly and we begin to think, oh, well, it's about my rights. You know, what if I, I want to do this or I don't want to do this? 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7 says, For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? 
What's he saying? He's saying, you know what? You're, you're, you're bought. I, I purchased you. you, don't, you don't have, you're not your own person. And we need to kind of be reminded of that, I think, even in our modern-day churches today, because we all have our list of preferences. Oh, I like that book of the Bible. I wish you'd teach out of that book. I wish you'd do this. I wish, I wish the music would be this way or that way. Or, boy, I wish evangelism would happen this way or that way. Let's just be biblical. Let's just go to the Bible and understand what the Bible says and then apply it. That's what we're called to do. It's not about programs. It's not about preferences. It's about doing what the Word of God commands us to do as His children. And what he has told us to do is to live a life in a way that you're so controlled by the Spirit of God that people look at you and say, wow, there's something radically different about this person. I'm going to find out what it is. And that's a point of contact. And they begin to talk with you. And they begin to examine your life. And they begin to look at you. And pretty soon, doors begin to open. And they begin to tell you things about their own lives and where they need help, where they need counsel. And then God begins to use you in their life to proclaim to them, hey, you know what, I can give you all the counsel I want, but ultimately you need to go to the ultimate counselor, Jesus Christ. He's the one that can save you. He's the one that can straighten out this mess you're in. He's the one that can fix your family and your finances and everything else. He can do all that, but you have to come to him. It's not just a matter of, well, let's see what Jesus will do, and then maybe I'll serve him. No. God promises to care for us as his children. But we have to cross that line of demarcation. We have to be willing to commit. Nobody likes people who are unwilling to commit. I mean, when you're young and used to play on sports teams, you know, if you were on the team, you were on the team. You know, nobody liked the kid that was on the team that he didn't want to be on and kind of threw the game by messing up. And, you know, nobody likes that kind of person. If you're on Christ's team, then we need to act like it. We need to live like it. That's what God wants from us. And the only way that can happen, beloved, is through the grace of Christ. And I'm just telling you, when we go through this book, this wonderful book of Romans, we're going we're gonna to have our buttons pushed in a lot of different ways. And there's going to be Sundays we walk out of here scratching our heads going, wow, what was that? But we want to ask God to give us the wisdom that we need as we kind of undertake the book of Romans. And just be reminded that, you know what, Paul was a man just like us. There wasn't a halo around his head. He was a man that was saved by God's grace, just like you can be saved by God's grace, just like those of us who have trusted in Christ are saved by God's grace. Because... The scripture says very clearly that we all need the same grace. We all need the same amount. We need to be cleansed of our sin. The only way that can happen is through the blood, the sacrifice of Christ. And your trust and your commitment to that. Father, we thank you this morning. And I know, Lord, this is just kind of an overview, introductory message to begin this book of Romans. But Lord, I pray that you would use these words in the hearts of those who are gathered here to encourage, to edify, to build up, to convict. Lord, if there's any here who do not know you, haven't put their faith, their trust in you, Lord, I pray that you would draw them to yourself as only you can. Father, that you would do that work that nobody can do. It's not, you don't come to Christ just because of persuasion. You don't come to Christ just because it's a good idea. You come to Christ because God has opened your heart 
to the depravity of your own sin and you realize there's no way out. There's nowhere else to turn. Christ is the only way. He's the answer. He said that himself. He's the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. And Father, as believers here this morning, I pray that we would examine our own hearts as we partake of these elements, this bread and this juice, in remembrance of your sacrifice for our sin. Lord, I pray that you would move and work in ways that only you can. And Father, help us to remember that there's, there's no condemnation for those that are in Christ. That you have forgiven us of our sin. You have placed us in the righteousness of Christ. And Lord, we thank you for that forgiveness. And we thank you for that continuous relationship that we have with you. And it's not dependent upon us. It's dependent upon you. And the power that you possess ultimately save us from sin, from death. Because Christ rose in victory over sin and death, that makes that possible. And so, Lord, I pray that as we even sing this hymn together, Lord, that you would move and work in our hearts, draw us closer to the Savior, help us to understand that you have given everything to save us. Surely we can give back a little commitment to you as we serve you until you call us home. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.